So let's let's pray. Father, this is a, a, a sacred time in which your word is opened up in the midst of your people. Uh, Father, I, I know of the God just daunting task this is to take your word and to open it and to get behind it and to speak under it. Um, God is one who is under its authority. Uh, Lord, would pray even today that you would meet us and that you would help us, that you would convict us, that you would encourage us. God, all these things as we think about the judgment, as we think about the role of the, the law in that judgment, as we think about you, O oh Lord, being the, the fair judge. God, as we think of, of creation and our consciences. And, and so, Lord, would pray that we would rejoice in the gospel today. God, refresh our hearts in these things. God, be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we open the scriptures today, I just want to just tell you of, a, of two things. First of all, at the end of my message today, we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper. Um, and some who have gluten-free needs, we're going to start providing some gluten-free options for that as well. So when Ray comes around, you just kind of give him the wink would be, would be good. Or the hand raise or, or whatever. Um, that'd be fine. Um, also, I just want to talk about next week. Periodically, from time to time at Rock Valley Bible Church, we have a, a praise and prayer service. Uh, it's an opportunity for which we can give thanks to God. We can give praise to God. We can spend extended time praying uh, together as a congregation, some in groups, some individually. And we're going to be having a praise and prayer service uh, next Sunday, just in light of Thanksgiving. Uh, so I will have something prepared to preach, um, but I, I'm kind of planning that I'm not going to preach because we're going to just have opportunities just to share. Those are always, always good times. So you can be thinking now about uh, just ways in which you're thankful to the Lord or give testimony of praise. Even write some notes down to come next Sunday prepared to, to do that as we entrust just a Thanksgiving week to Him. All right, well, I want to talk about society. Right, Every society needs a rule of law, a standard by which we live by, by, by what is right and wrong, and the law is that standard. It states that certain behavior will be tolerated and other behavior will not. I mean, th- those behaviors that cause bodily harm to one another will not be tolerated. It's called assault. Behavior that damages the property of another is called vandalism won't be uh, tolerated. Taking property, it's another person, is called theft. Going on someone's land without permission is trespassing. Taking life, another is murderer. And these will not be tolerated in a, in a just, fair society. And when these laws are maintained, there is order in society. Now, of course, it's not always that easy that every law that's broken is uh, equally recompensed or, or dealt with. Disputes about the law always comes up. In fact, that's what the purpose of the courts are, is to hear the disputes of people and to understand the law and administer justice on behalf of the wronged party so that our society can be stable and can remain order. And in any society, this is is far from perfect. I mean, you think about our society, even how many there are who get away with their crimes, And I just say too many do. How many thefts and murders are unsolved? Cold cases, as we call them. 
How many missing children are missing and their stories will never be told? How many pieces of property are ruined or damaged or stolen and never ever to be retrieved? How many crimes are left unprosecuted? How, how many are living life underneath the radar of justice? As if they have gotten away with things or, or living, a, living a life of a lie. I know from time to time you'll, you'll hear stories of someone who the FBI just finally nabbed after escaping from prison 60 years earlier and having gone under a, a false name and got a new identity and they've been hiding away with this, this hidden thing on their mind. And it's like, well, where were the 60 years? Right? And, and we can cry for justice. We want justice in all our ways, but, but equally in an un, imperfect society, we can, we can so cry for justice that we over-justice and we convict wrongdoers, those who didn't commit a crime, to a crime. And from time to time you hear stories of those who have been accused for a crime sent to prison for years, only to be found innocent years later when some further evidence surfaces. In fact, it's such a problem in the United States that an organization has been formed called the Innocence Project. And their mission, you can see it on their website, is to free the staggering number of innocent people who remain incarcerated and to bring reform to the system responsible for their unjust imprisonment. So you have not enough justice, we want more justice, and then we have wrongfully applied justice. How often there is prejudice in the courts. How often there is justice is not prevail. And the utopia of perfect justice is so slippery that it's quite frankly impossible to obtain here on earth in this fallen world. We will never have perfect justice. But here's the good news. The good news the Bible brings us, the good news about God, the good news about the gospel is there's no injustice with God. When God judges, he does so perfectly. My message this morning is entitled Law and Judgment. It comes from Romans chapter 2. So if you if you haven't taken your Bibles yet and open there, I invite you to Romans chapter 2. Uh, our text this morning goes from verses 2 to 16. If you don't have a Bible this morning, there's a Bible in the, the row in front of you. You can open it up to page uh, number 940. If you don't have a Bible at, at home, you can take this one home. It's our gift to you. Romans 2, 12 to 16. Stems off of the words from verse 11. God shows no partiality. Here he is, law and justice, perfect law, perfect justice. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires... They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. That God does show no partiality. He is no respecter of persons, and thereby He judges perfectly and I say this his judgment is far more perfect than any human court could ever be because when God judges in his omnipotence he has other data that human judges simply don't have he can discern our thoughts 
He can discern the intentions of our heart. He knows what's really true. He knows what is false. Jeremiah 17 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. When it comes to judgment, God takes the heart into mind. He takes into account the light that we have received and then he judges accordingly. He judges according to knowledge. Indeed, that is my my first point of my message this morning is that there is judgment according to knowledge. Look again at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the Lord, by the law. In other words, when God executes judgment, He takes into account what it is that we know. If we don't know the law, He will not judge us for our ignorance. If we have the law and know the law, He will judge us accordingly. Now, a few occasions in my I've been ignorant of the rules, being ignorant of the law, and I have had to pay for it. For instance, this, this spring, Avon and I took a trip to India to train pastors and, uh, and their wives. The timing of, of our trip was such that we were able to spend five days with Carissa in England, who was finishing up her student teaching, and, and in God's sovereignty, it was, it was uh, just right there, just five days right before we were going to go uh, to uh, to India, and so we just grabbed for $200 a ticket extra, just enough to, to get there and spend our days with her. And uh, on one of those days, we took a trip to Brighton, which is in the south. It's a popular tourist spot of, uh, of the English along the southern coast of the, of the country. And so we, we purchased a, a lunch from a, a local vendor, and we headed out to the beach to eat it. And uh, as we saw on this beach, there were all these chairs, and no one was sitting in these chairs. A lot of people were sitting on the beach, which is just rocks. And so we, we thought, hey, we're going to enjoy our meal right there on these wonderful chairs. And, and about time we, we got up to go, a man approached us, a strong man, a big man, and he approached us and he said, um, did you know that those chairs are for hire? And we're like, what are you talking about? He says, yes, they actually cost two pounds each. So that would be like $3 each. That would be like three of us. That's like $10 to sit in those chairs for like 20 minutes. Now, we didn't know what exactly he was talking about. Um, so he pointed over there to that, that sign. Way off there. You, you see that sign? And we said, no. And uh, by the time then we, we walked up to it, we saw the sign. And, and there was, explained everything. Deck chairs for two pounds. You can sit in these deck chairs all day long. And then suddenly we understood why it was that nobody was sitting in these chairs because nobody really wanted to pay the two pounds. But he was big and he was strong and it didn't matter that we didn't see the sign. Um, He demanded his pay and ignorance was no excuse. So I handed over the six pounds we owed him and, and I felt cheated. I really did. Like, what are you talking about? I didn't see those signs. And in the integrity of my heart, I didn't see those signs. In fact, if I knew that eat, sitting in those signs for 20 minutes cost us $10, you think I would have done that? I don't think so. I'd have found some other place to sit and enjoy our lunch. Well, on another occasion, our stakes were higher. We, a few summers ago, we were visiting California. And uh, we are driving down I-5, and, and I was at the wheel, and 
And I saw signs like this in California, which you, which you really like, and, and was cruising right along, right about 70 miles an hour is right, right where it was. And, and unfortunately, behind these 70 mile an hour signs, there are other signs just 300 yards down the way by, that read like this. Autos with trailers, trucks, 55 maximum. I didn't notice those signs, even though I was traveling with our teardrop trailer, affectionately known as, as Little Guy, and I uh, didn't realize the 55 maximum applied to me, and so I met one of these. <laughs> and, and really, I pleaded ignorance of the law. I, I said, I did not know that 55 miles an hour was the law with, um, with our, our trailer, even though I'd passed by these signs over and over and over again. Um, I, I tried to plead my case, but it didn't work. I broke the law. There's no excuse. I had to pay the consequence, $450 worth of consequence. Ouch is right. My wife thinks that they, they were targeting Illinois license plates is what, what she really thinks. It was not a pleasant experience. And when we're in California nowadays and we drive by one of these signs, you know what we say? Yeah, 55 miles an hour with a trailer. Do we have a trailer? No, we don't have a trailer. We're okay. And uh, we notice these signs all the time. Now we do, but we didn't before. But you know what? I went away from that feeling cheated. Like, like, like this shouldn't, shouldn't have happened. I, I should have known. If, because if I had known, I think I'd have driven 55 with a trailer on the back and police watching us. Like I've done ever since, since I'm pulling a trailer, because I don't want to get stopped by that wonderful lady again, as wonderful as she was. Listen, but around our country, around the world, it is simple. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. But, but here's the thing, though. With God, God, it's not the case. Because God takes into account our ignorance. God's judgment is such that He knows what you know, and He knows what you don't know, and He judges you what on what you do know and not on what you don't know. If you don't know those seats cost two pounds each, you won't be held responsible. If you know, don't know the speed limit's 55, you don't have to pay the $450 ticket. Now, don't think that that's going to get people off of the judgment. Okay, uh, I think about Saddam Hussein in this light. And, uh, you know, he, he has so many war crimes against him that he was... He was found guilty for like this first trial. But if that trial would have somehow, whatever, not gone right, there would have been another trial that could have gone his way. And if that one didn't go, there would have been another one, another one, another one. And finally, he would have been condemned. So don't think that ignorance necessarily means that, oh, I could just get away. No, God knows all and can pierce our hearts and will pierce our hearts. He's the perfect judge. He knows when we're lying, when we're telling the truth. He knows what we did, what we didn't do, and will judge us accordingly. And here's the deal, is that none of us will leave the throne of God feeling cheated in any way. We all will know that God has paid His just recompense perfectly, because God is correct in all of His assessments. Look again there at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by that law. We see two groups in this verse, we see the first group are those without the law. 
by the way, are talked about again in uh, verses 14 and 15. And we see those who are under the law, which is talked about in verse 13. The first group, those without the law, include those who don't have the Bible. He's talking about the nations and societies that uh, haven't been reached for the gospel. He's talking about a godless society. He's talking about pagans who have no knowledge of the law of God. And the second group are those who have the Bible. Specifically, he's talking about the Jews of the Old Testament who knew it, who preserved it, who copied it, who loved it, who revered it, and confessed that they lived under the law's direction. We can easily apply that to Christians today who have the Bible and know the Bible and say, yes, I live by the Bible. Even if you don't even know what the Bible says, you still would profess to live by the Bible and you'll know enough. Now notice how differently God deals with these groups of people. Those without the law, it says he will perish without the law, and those under the law will be judged by the law. And this is what I mean when I say that judgment will be according to knowledge. God has perfect knowledge, and you have imperfect knowledge, but whatever knowledge you have, that's what God is going to use against you. In fact, um, notice exactly what will take place with the first group. It says that they will perish without the law. All who sin without the law, they will perish without the law. It doesn't say all who sin without the law will be saved. It doesn't say all those who don't have the law will be saved. No, it says those who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. That is, they will be judged. That is, they will be condemned. That's what the implication here of the final judgment is. It's eternal destruction. It is a perishing Now, this often causes concern for people because people think, okay, if that's the case, if I don't have the law, I'm going to be condemned, I'm going to be perished without the law. What about about those people who never had the law? Can God really be? I mean, they've never heard the gospel. They've never heard the message of Jesus Christ that He came to bear our sins upon the cross. They've never heard that we're required to believe in Him. And by believing Him, our, our sins can be wiped away because He took the punishment for us and for our sins. And without hearing that, there's no opportunity for salvation. This we talked about in our prayer meeting this morning. That many of us will be meditating on this week. John 14 particularly verse 6. It's not one of the fighter verses, but it's there. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The only way to the Father is through Jesus. So if you don't hear about Jesus, this here says that they will perish. And, and, And people think with no opportunity for salvation, they think that God will be unfair to judge them. Unfair to send them to hell. And, and, and that they will have that taste in their mouth as they go to hell. That they were cheated somehow. Well, I, w- I would say that um, uh, that's indeed what Paul is saying. That they will perish without the law. But I would also say that he, he judged according to knowledge. So they're going to have no complaint in standing before God. Because even though they don't have the law, they still have enough to condemn them. Remember back in, in chapter 1 of Romans, in fact, if you're struggling with this about the people who've never heard the gospel, how can God condemn them? Well, he, can, he judges them according to knowledge. They say, what have they known about God? Well, Romans 1, we've been through this often. 
He has made Himself known to every human being who's ever lived. Romans 1.21 Everyone knows God. Verse 20 of Romans chapter 1, they know the eternal power of God. They know the, the divine nature of God. And every human being alive has rebelled against that knowledge, refusing to honor the Lord, refusing to give thanks to the Lord. Verse 21, and God will be completely just for condemning them. And they will not feel cheated. They will see and know, yes, you are the glorious one. Yes, I knew about you, but I did not honor you or give thanks to you. And God, if you notice here, will judge without the law. So he's not going to pull this this sign that says 55 miles an hour out of his pocket and say, here you go. He's not going to pull the Ten Commandments written to Israel long ago, but then never reach this distant tribe or never reach this American who's never been to church in his life. He's not going to pull that out, right? He's basically going to condemn them based on what they know. And they know of his creation, they know of who he is, and they've rejected him. And so God will judge them without the law, and they will perish without the law. You know, Paul's going to talk about this again in chapter 5. Look over at chapter 5 and verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, we'll get into that all important verse in, in future months. But look at verse 13. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. And that's what we're talking about, right? Before the law, with, without the law. But sin was not counted where there is no law. There it is. If there's no law, sin is not counted because there is There's no law there, but death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him to come. These verses talk about Adam's sin and his effect upon all of us. He particularly is talking about those who who lived before even there was a thing called the Ten Commandments. And remember, God, God gave the law to Moses in 1400 B.C. Adam lived quite some time before that. And before Moses, of course, 600 years was Abraham, was before him, and, and before him was Noah, and before him was Adam, if you trace it back, some thousands, a couple thousand years. And yet, during all that time, right, death reigned even though there was no law. And God was just in condemning them because, as Romans 5, verse 12 says, they sinned in Adam. So even there, they, they sinned in Adam. But he also made himself known. They refused to give thanks to the Lord. And so he condemned them. And the fact that death was in the world is Paul's point. Verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses. He didn't have to bring out the Ten Commandments in order to condemn people to death, the rightful punishment that they deserved. God judged them without the law. And just get it in your minds that God's ways are always just. And those who never heard the gospel will justly perish. Listen, if you don't embrace that fact, you don't understand the gospel because you think there's something good or something inherent in them that God is going to look over their sins. But it's only through Christ that our sins can be forgiven and they don't have Christ. And not only missing the gospel, but you may miss the urgency of telling them about the gospel because you might 
think that a state of ignorance is better for them than a state of knowledge. Because once they know, if they don't believe, they're condemned. But if we keep them in ignorance, they might be okay. And no, if they're in ignorance, they're going to perish without the law. They'll perish in their ignorance. Apart from hearing the gospel, all are lost. That's why I must go. That's why I must speak. That's why we must tell people of the gospel. Well, let's move on to the, the second group. That is those who have the law. Look at, look at verse 12 again. For all who sinned without the law will also perish without the law. But here it is, verse 12. All who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Notice how God takes into account what you know. And if you know the law, God will judge you by the law. If you know the Ten Commandments, you'll be judged by the Ten Commandments. If you know the Proverbs, He'll judge you by the Proverbs. If you know the demands of Jesus, like if anyone who comes to me must take up his cross, deny himself, follow me, He'll judge you according to the demands of Jesus. If you know the epistles of Paul, He'll judge you by the epistles of Paul. And whatever light you've received, God will use that in His judgment against you. That's why it's so tragic when the Jews rejected Jesus. I mean, here it is that they had light. Jesus, it says in John 1, 4, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. But John says later, this is the judgment, that life has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. And rather than embracing the light, the Jews rejected Him. And it's no more clear than it was on that judgment scene when Jesus was standing there with Pilate. Barabbas was there and Pilate said, which of the two do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or, or Jesus, who is called the Christ? And they shouted out, let him, Jesus, be crucified. And when Pilate said, why, what, what, what evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. And on that day of judgment, God will bring this to bear as testimony against the Jews who rejected the Messiah. They've had the law. They, they knew of Moses. Moses spoke of Jesus, and they refused to believe in Jesus, thereby refusing to believe in the law and refusing to follow in their ways. They had seen the light. Their condemnation is just. Now, before you throw stones at the Jews, realize that we stand in the same place and perhaps worse because we have so much more knowledge than the Jews had. We have more light. We have not only the Old Testament, but we also have the New Testament. Not only are the New Testament, but we have the benefit of history and hindsight and seeing and understanding. You know, they, they say hindsight is twenty twenty because you can see the mistakes that were made. You can see how it all turned out. And you can see and evaluate it. You know, there's a reason why presidents... You know, President Obama, you know, he's not going to be evaluated when his day ends in office like next year. It's like decades out when you get hindsight to see, okay, how exactly was his presidency? How did how'd that fit out? And so likewise with Jesus, it wasn't like even right after. Yes, there were, were people who understood and, and all, but, but with the hindsight, we stand in such a greater way of understanding just what took place, the, the, the claims of Jesus. And Jesus said this, to everyone who's been given much, much will be required of him. And when it comes to our lives, God requires much of us because he has put himself out in clear proof of who he is. He has clearly told us how it is that we ought to live. He has clearly demonstrated what it is we ought to believe. And our failures will be judged. 
brings us really to our, our second point here. Judgment according to knowledge. I wanted to put down here judgment according to deeds, which is really what it's talking about, but it doesn't use those terms. It uses the term justified according to deeds. And so like in the spirit of last week, when I tried to keep the terminology, I try to keep the terminology here with clarification of what exactly this means. Verse 13, again, this is talking about that second group of people who have sinned under the law, will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, we encountered some verses like this last week. I, I trust you remember like verses 6 and 7 for chapter 2. He will render to each one according to his works. That is, God will repay according to your works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Or verse 9 Verse 10, rather, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew and also to the Greek. It looks an awful lot like salvation by works. But God will render according to your works. If you're patient in well-doing, eternal life and glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, who continues in that good. And we might say, well, Steve, are you saved by works? And we showed last week where it's, it's not. Um, where really the idea here in verse 7 is that people seeking eternal life, they're seeking the Lord, they're seeking His ways, and they're seeking the ways of Christ. But we also even looked last week about how Paul himself argued that you're not justified by your works. Look over in chapter 3, verse 28. We didn't even mention this verse last week. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. We're justified by faith. And here in verse 13, it seems like we're justified by works. The doers of the law who will be justified. But Paul, throughout all of Romans, says we're not justified by our works. Romans 3.24, we're justified by His grace as a gift. Romans 4, 5, to the one who does not work, but to him who believes in him who justifies the godly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Romans 5, 1, we have, since we have peace with God, we've been, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans 5, 9, we've been justified by his blood. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. All those things seem to say the exact opposite of verse 13. Doesn't it seem that we are justified by works? Okay, so again, just like last week, we've got to ask the million-dollar question. Last week, the question is, why does Paul say that God will render each one according to his works when he knows that we're saved by grace and not by works? He makes that clear throughout the letter. Right? And this week, right, we just, we just easily change this, take that question out. What does Paul say? Why does Paul say the doers of a law will be justified? Four reasons. He was wrong. He was mistaken. Okay, now, Avon, Avon said, I did, uh, what's the difference between being wrong and being mistaken? All right. Um, I don't know. All right, but, but I had to come up with four. And, and mistaken maybe has, he was, he was trying to be right. He thought he was right, but he just, he, so there it kind of got like an intent in there. I don't know, but he was neo-Orthodox. Holy both. Okay, obviously, right, the answer is D, he was right. He was right. 
is that we are, it's the doers of law who will be justified. And I think the key, as always, is to say, if you ever come across a verse you don't understand, just read the verse before it, read the verse after it, read the paragraph before it, read the paragraph after it, and understand the flow of thought. The, the idea of Paul, he's aiming at, he's going towards chapter 3, verse 10. No one is righteous, not even one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together become worthless. No one is, does good, not even one. And so the, Paul, the thought even here that Paul's saying that by our goodness or by our deeds we merit justification, he, he, he's not saying that. That we can be justified before God is not what Paul's getting at. He's getting at something else. Right? I, I think verse 17, the verse after this paragraph starts to get at But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what's excellent because you're instructed by the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a structure of the foolishness, a teacher of the children, having in the law the embodiment and knowledge of the truth. Right? If you know, if you, if you lift yourself up so highly as knowing the law and loving the law and teaching the law, he says... Why don't you do it? And you doing it or not demonstrates whether you really know and love the law. As Paul says, chapter 2, verse 13, it's not the hearers of the law. It's not the possessors of the law. It's not the teachers of the law. It's not those who know the law. It's not those who copy the law. That's all fine and good. But that's just, that's just profession. That's just words. That's just talk. Rather, it's the doers of the law who will be justified. Now note, after the word justified here, it does not say justified by their doing. That's a, that's a great period that just stops right there. The doers of the law who will be justified. Bam. And it stops there. So you've got to say, well, well, what does this mean? And I think what it means is the doing of the law justifies the fact that all those things you profess of the law are genuinely true. That your faith is there, that your trust is there, that you're trusting God, and your works flow from that. And it goes in that order. It's faith and then works. It's faith apart from our works makes us righteous in God. Again, chapter 3, verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. But our works are important. And don't, don't just push them aside, because the Bible would not push them aside. Right, let's, let's, let's do some math here, okay? Which, which equation is correct? Faith equals salvation. Irrespective of works, works have nowhere in the equation. Or faith plus works equals salvation, right? I, I believe, I work, and I'm saved. Or the last one. Faith leads to salvation, which leads to works. Let's say which one of those is right. Yeah, that's good. It's a great guess. Okay, thanks for your boldness. But you lost a million dollars, Thatcher. Okay, that last one is where it is. Faith leads to salvation, leads to work. The first one is simply known as easy believism. And there's something very true about that first one. But it fails to deal with verse 13. It fails to deal with works. It, it fails to deal with putting works in our salvation in its proper place. Like if we just believe. And what happens oftentimes is if you just profess you believe. I almost put here faith in quotes. Like you just profession of faith equals salvation. And so many people believe that. So many people in churches believe that. Every time I just hear, oh, so-and-so, he prayed this prayer. I know they're a Christian. It's like they're not living like a Christian. 
How do you know? Well, I know because they say they, they prayed this prayer. I'm like, there's no place for works. But it's always, right, coming up the aisle or, or some event or some one-time thing that this, they say they have faith, but that faith doesn't endure. That, that, that faith, I would contend, is not real because it doesn't demonstrate itself in works. So that's why I almost put faith there in salvation because faith equals salvation is absolutely true. That's what Romans 3.28 says. Justified by faith apart from works of a law. Or faith plus works equals salvation. That is the error of Roman Catholicism. You must have faith and your works to be saved. That takes Romans, 3, Romans chapter 2, verse 13 and 3.28 and seeks to harmonize them in this way. Right, that Romans 2.13 speaks about works, so you've got to have that to be justified. And Romans 3.28 speaks about faith. You've got to have faith to have those. And so they put those together, but the problem is they miss the exception clause of 3.28. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And it fails to understand which has priority, whether it's faith or works, and which has precedence, which is most important. And it fails to understand which has dominance. It's a faith that runs everything. It just brought works up to this level that it's never intended to be. And finally, biblical Christianity, uh, I believe, is that last one. That faith leads us to salvation, and salvation then leads us to works as God transforms us. I quoted Titus 3.5 last week. I'm preaching the same message this week as I did last week because the text is the same. Titus 3.5. Not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration, newing by the Holy Spirit. It's the washing, it's the regeneration, it's the renewing then that produces these works. Regeneration changes us. We're born from above. We have different desires. We have new desires. And that's what we pursue after. And I think that deals rightly with the statements in chapter 2, verse 13, rightly putting works in the right place. You might, for in chapter 2, verse 13, replace justified with vindicated. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be vindicated. That is, they'll be demonstrated to have faith. You might understand it that way. His understanding to both those statements, it includes the uh, exception clause of chapter 3, verse 28. And it gives us the reality of their faith. See, it's not just words. It's not just saying. It's God transforming you into being a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 must have some meaning. It's the same thing that James gets at that Darren read for us this, this morning, right? Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Right? To be a doer, not just a, a deceitful hearer. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently his natural face in the mirror. He's looking at the law. He's looking in the mirror. He's looking at himself. Oh, wonderful. Right? He looks at himself and goes away. And once he forgets what he was like, right? he forgets what the law says. He forgets what, what he's supposed to do. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, right? That is the law of freedom, the law of Christ. And perseveres, that is, believes and endures. Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He'll be blessed in his doing. And I just say this, let's be doers of the word. Rightful doers who believe in Jesus, see him transform our lives, and then see him produce fruit. Our fighter verse from last week, if you were memorizing that, I mean, it's work out just, just excellent. It's um, John fifteen five. He who abides in me bears much fruit. I'm trying to think, now that's not how it goes. It starts, abide in me 
and I in you. I'm the vine. There it is. I'm the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I am, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is the vine. We're the branches. As we abide in him and he abides in us, we will produce fruit. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So when Jesus is not there, you can't do anything. So even these equations, you have to have Jesus to do the works. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's why salvation is so important to these biblical works. Well, let's press on quickly to our our third point as we seek to get to the Lord's Supper here. Judgment according to conscience. And here we see another element by which God in His perfect knowledge judges this first group of people. Uh, Verse 14, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts either accuse or even excuse them. And really, this is a, a repetition of verse 12. Uh, in many ways, explaining what's going on in the mind of the Gentiles who don't have a law. Right, verse 12 speaks about how they don't have a law, but God says, you know what, they don't, they don't have maybe this external law that I've given, this written word of God. But they got something else. I mean, they have creation. We talked about that already. But they have a, a conscience. Verse 15 speaks about that. But even this conscience then makes them be a law to themselves. This, this law is written on their hearts. So what, what God does with, with people is He not only makes Himself known in creation, He also makes Himself known in their consciences. People know what is right and wrong in general In fact, people know what is right and wrong in general enough so as to know what sin is, to experience it, so that God would condemn them rightly. Again, nobody's going to feel cheated in that day. And and these people without the law, they they have this law. Oh, Oh, it may not be chapter and verse, but they got something inside of them that God puts inside of them. And that's just a basic morality. I mean, you go... You go around to different nations and different cultures. There is a, a basic morality, as base as that can be. Um, there is this morality that people know that, that they ought to treat others nicely. They ought to say nice words. They ought to be kind. They ought to help ladies across the street. I mean, people know that. And that is what is inside of them. But, but Paul even here talks about like this... this um, this arbitrator, right? It's, it's, it's in their hearts, right? It's, it's, it's bearing witness, right? This conscience is like this, this thing in their, in their heart or in their inner being which is telling them like what's right and, and what's wrong and, and what way to go and what way, what way not to go. I've heard the, the conscience described as uh, similar to our pain. Right? What, what pain is to the body, our conscience is to our soul. And that we wouldn't put our hand you know, smack up against a, a burner, or wouldn't stick our hand in a fire or leap off a tall building, right? Because, because we know, that's our conscience, is, is knows that that would be bad. Or our, our fear, right? Knows that's bad. Or, or pain receptors, knows it's bad. So likewise, just morally, a conscience is what tells you it's bad. And, and Christians have this, and non-Christians have this. Particularly here, we're talking about non-Christians, okay, but Paul speaks a lot about Christians who, who have this, this, uh, this conscience. Even Paul, at the, 
end of his life just talked about how he always takes plain to have a clear conscience before both God and before men, Acts 24, 16. It just, live with a good conscience that, that, that says and knows, my sin I've confessed before the Lord. I'm walking rightly as best I can. God, help me apart from me. Apart from you, I can do nothing. So I'm, I'm just trusting I'm, I'm living what I can. And he talks often, Paul does, about how our, the aim of our teaching is love from a pure heart and a good conscience. Hey, hey, I forgot to... I'll be smarter about that next time. But um, The aim of our heart is... a aim of our teaching is good heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, right? Christians should have a good conscience. And non-Christians have a conscience. But sadly, that, that conscience can be seared and marred. At chapter 1, verse 32, the end of the argument. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The conscience there has been weakened. And, and there can reach a place where I believe your conscience is no longer there. Where it was there, but you have you've slayed it. Or as First Timothy 4, 2 says, through insincerity of liars, they have consciences that are seared. They're burned. They're cauterized. It is not there. But it was there enough for God to condemn. And perhaps it, it is there depending upon where people exactly are. And there's the conscience. And so when you think about a, a conscience, here's a good picture of my old buddy Fred. And, uh, you know, he's trying to evaluate. I don't know what he's evaluating in this scene, but, but here it is, right? He's got his, his good Fred on one shoulder, and he's got his bad Fred on the other shoulder, and he's got this, this conscience, this conversation that's, that's going on. And it's conflicting thoughts. This is what Paul is talking about. And I know that you've all experienced this. So something that you're, you're thinking about doing or not. And you get, oh, should I do it? Oh, but it feels so good. Oh, but should I not do it? Oh, but I want it. Oh, but no, I can't. Oh, And just like Fred, right? He's struggling back and forth. And who knows? But the power of a conscience. You can just take stories of the Bible. Think about, think about Joseph. There with Potiphar's wife. Did, did he have zero conscience? Or did he have this, this battle, perhaps? He said, no, yes, no, yes, I gotta go. I go. And, and his, his conscience won out and helped him. We don't know. Think about Peter, right? Before rejecting Jesus, he's, he's out there warming his hands. He's there by the fire warming, warming his hands. And, and, he gets a, and he's like, oh. Oh, but yes, no, I should, I should. I promised Jesus that I would be there. Oh, but I can't. Oh, but you've got to save your life. And it back and forth. And that conversation may have been had. I mean, because that's what goes on in all of our heads. And you just think of biblical situations when those things are the case. As you have the inner arbitrator condemning. But here it is. It's that God judges according to our knowledge. He knows all of those conversations that have gone on in our heads. And he knows we've, when we have gone against conscience. And he knows when those in the world, even if they don't have the law, when they've gone against conscience, and he'll be able to say, remember this, you knew it was wrong, you did it anyway. Remember this, you knew it was wrong, you did it anyway. Remember this, and this, and this, and this. And, and God will have no lack of evidence for any of us, really. Look at verse 16. 
on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. When he's talking about consciences, God is able to judge even our consciences, even the secret thoughts that we have. Well, let's transition to the Lord's Supper here with my, my last point. On that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Here, simple fourth point is that judgment according to the gospel. That's just right out of here. On that day when according to my gospel, God is going to judge all of us. And so we think about Romans 1 through 3 and this, and this sin is what we've been going after, right? As we, as we think about the, the gospel of Romans, right? We're dealing with this first word, sin. As we think about sin, as we think about all of us, right? Condemned. God's going to, he, he knows our sins. What are we going to do? And the fact is, none of us are righteous. We can't stand before God. There's none of us. How is God going to judge us and bring us into his kingdom? Well, the good news is this. It comes in chapter 3, verse 21. When we, when we get there, we'll, we'll bring this out more, but I'll just, I'll just put it forth now. Look at verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's all of us. We've all sinned. We've all short, fallen short of the glory of God. And notice that verse 23 is talking about believers because these are the ones who've fallen short and are justified. These aren't the ones who've fallen short and are condemned, but these are the ones who've fallen short and sinned and are justified. So there is hope. And we are justified, verse 24, it's by His grace a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Here it is, God's gift to us, God's grace to us, that we are, are justified. And you say, well, how can we be justified? Aren't we guilty? Uh, I mean, if we're, if we're guilty, how is it that we stand justified? And that's exactly what Paul's talking about. In Christ Jesus, verse 25, God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Propitiation, that, that means wrath-averting sacrifice. So you read it like this. Like God put forward Jesus as a wrath-averting sacrifice by His blood that we are to receive by faith. This is... By the way, why Jesus was punished and why he was the why God poured out his wrath on him rather than upon us. Similar like if something bad happens, right? You, well, why, why do people right, break their fists and punch in through windows or punch in doors? Right? Because their wrath is angry at their child, but they don't want to hit their child. They, the door takes the wrath. And why did Jesus take the wrath for us? He took the wrath for us to show God's righteousness. You say, well, what does that mean? Here it is. In his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins, like he passed over the sins of Abraham and Noah and Moses and David. He passed over those sins. And you say, well, is he not just? How can he just pass over sins? Doesn't, doesn't a, a sin require punishment? Yes, every sin ever committed will be punished. The good news is that it will be punished according to my gospel. Paul says, either on Jesus or on you. And, and as we believe in Jesus, God's punishment for our sins falls on him. That's why it says here that he might, verse 26, it was to show his righteousness the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He's just in that he, 
He condemned Jesus for your sins. He punished Jesus for your sins. He's a justifier in the sense that now that sin has been punished and you can go free. And that's, that's the gospel. It's the gospel that God is the just, God is just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. And it's good news when you understand just the gravity of sin and the gravity of what, what God does in his judgment. His law is perfect. His judgment comes perfect like a hammer upon us. And it would come upon us except it came upon Christ for us who believe. Another courtroom setting. And here I'll have the Lord's Supper. Therefore, Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus, you're free. The judgment doesn't fall on you. And yes, I praise the Lord for that. And that is what we celebrate with the Lord's Supper, is that we remember, not by word, but by an object lesson, with bread and by the cup, that, that Jesus on that night in which he was betrayed, right? He, he took the bread at that meal. He said, this is my body. He took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in the blood. This is like, like, like the, the, the fruit of the vine there is like the blood. And he says, do this remembrance to me. As we do it, as we eat of it, we're supposed to remember him. And what Paul says upon that, he says, when you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And so Paul exhorts us to examine ourselves before we eat, before we drink. Just, I, I encourage you today, just examine your conscience. Do you have a clear conscience? If not, I would encourage you, 1 John 1, 9, right, to, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Just be confessing your sins before the Lord and have a clear conscience because it's, it's yes, I've messed up, but it's before the Lord and I'm, I can walk clean and pure and happy. So examine yourself and then as we pass the bread and pass the cup, feel free to celebrate with us. This really is a celebration, remembrance of the gospel of Jesus. But if there's sin you're harboring, and if you know that you're not trusting in Christ, just let it pass. Let it pass. But if you're trusting in Christ wholeheartedly today, have a clear conscience, then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And again, if you want a gluten-free, Ray's going to help you with that. So let's pray. Father, would pray that you would God, help us appropriately, oh God, to trust in you, to see your perfect judgment, that the law comes and the judgment follows perfectly. God, but may we rest and trust that there's no condemnation because you are just and the justifier. You punished Jesus in our stead. So I, I pray, God, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper here, may we rejoice that Jesus paid it all and that Jesus is the one who who took our sin, our stain away, that we can be whiter than snow in Him. God, may this be a time of joy as we reflect upon Him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.